Welcome back to the Emerging Cricket Podcast, the uh, the regular weekly edition, although it has not quite been weekly due to uh, some personal reasons with our regular co-host Bez and Tim Cutler being swept up in yet another cyclone in Vanuatu, as, as tends to happen on beautiful tropical islands. Uh, so this week I'm joined by Tom Grunshaw, regular contributor to Emerging Cricket. Welcome in, Tom. Uh, good evening, Nick. Thanks for having me on again. Always good to be with you, Tom. And uh, just a quick reminder to listeners that you're not going completely without uh, Emerging Cricket content because Nate Hayes, our USA correspondent, is running a separate podcast with Armin Patel discussing USA cricket. So if you need your Emerging Cricket fix, there's still plenty of content going on in the Emerging Cricket podcast feed. But yes, this week we're looking... Well, there's a lot going on, but the biggest story, of course, for Emerging Cricket fans is Netherlands at the World Cup. And in the time since we last spoke, uh, Bangladesh has gone down. So that's a, that's a positive result for the Netherlands, uh, although they struggled against Afghanistan and uh, kind of lost the plot against England. So, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag, although, you know, it, it's been a mixed bag for them at the World Cup in, in general. Uh, so we'll, we'll start with a positive, bidding Bangladesh. Uh, another Scott Edwards special um, <laughs> rescued the Dutch, as, as he so often does, from a wobbly position from the middle order. And then Logan van Beek as well, assisting him with a with a capable half-century down the order and, uh, and and backed it up with an early wicket, So which really sort of started the rot. Um, and then yeah, Paul van Makeren in the middle order, superb spell, ended up being declared player of the match for his four wickets. Um, and, you know, he just looks unplayable. He had batters playing away from the body and got a couple of nicks early. So uh, good effort with the ball, keeping Bangladesh to 142 bowled out, uh, winning by 87 runs. So, again, the Netherlands top order struggled a bit and, and it was the lower order that got them to a defendable total. Uh, it, was, it was sort of a reversal with Afghanistan where the top order actually looked good with um, Max O'Dowd finally finding some form and, and starting a good partnership with Colin Ackerman and, and then Sieberen Engelbrecht uh, also hit a half century. So they had three decent contributions from the, the top four, but then they really shot themselves in the foot with four runouts in the top five. I mean... I, <laughs> I was I was saying on the on the group chat that I, I hope Ryan Cook, the coach, has them running laps around the oval because you know that's that's just schoolboy stuff really. You you can't give away four runouts and expect to win a game, and so it goes. You know the bowlers uh, looked completely unable to build pressure, but then you know when you're defending a small target, not a whole lot to do. Uh, Ramat Shah for the Afghans looked very very good in his innings and yeah pretty much just guided them home. Very comfortable victory for Afghanistan. Very unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> after looking like they finally uh, had had the top order kick into gear, then they they just uh, blew it. So that was yeah extremely disappointing. Um, and then England. I mean, yeah, they they bowled well early on, but then death bowling, especially against a player of uh, you know Stokes's caliber. Once once he gets going, there's sort of nothing you really can do, as we've seen in a few spectacular knocks in white ball and in uh, test cricket over the years. But they gave away 93 runs in the last six overs. England posted 339. Yeah, it's too much for the Dutch to chase, especially with their top order not firing. So, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag. But obviously winning one out of three matches in, in the time we, since we last spoke, that's that's a pretty good return for a, an associate who is clearly not supposed to be there. Yeah, well, I think they've had... Um... Yeah, it's definitely a mixed bag. I think if you look back on that Bangladesh game in isolation, that's probably one of their more complete performances in the tournament. Obviously, they beat South Africa. That's probably a bigger scalp on the whole, but that was 
as much another Scott Edwards um, rescue mission as as anywhere else. But yeah, that Bangladesh game, so Eden Gardens in Kolkata, which is about as geographically close to Bangladesh as you can get, but um, even with a good home crowd in Bangladesh, struggled on what was a very fast and perhaps more European-looking wicket than a, a subcontinental one. And yeah, uh, it was the, the fast bowlers for the Dutch that did uh, all the damage. Paul van Meekeren, as you say, was absolutely lethal. Four for 23, uh, including picking up three big wickets in the middle, including Shakib al-Hassan, which really turned the tide in the Dutch's favour. The the to- total 229 maybe didn't look all that big, but when you picked up six wickets for 70 runs, uh, that, that swings the tide of a game pretty quickly in your favor and then yeah the other two games were perhaps more disappointing obviously Af- afghanistan we ne- we do need to say they're having a fantastic tournament so far mm. they're not going to make the semi-finals i don't think we're recording this uh, just before their last game uh, where they need to smash south africa by, by uh, 400 or something yeah four, 400 runs there and thereabouts but they're going to finish with with four wins and in the middle of the pack which is a, a, a big uptick on you know they're, they're two previous World Cup performances. But yeah, I suppose when you look at it, the Dutch have pl- probably played Afghanistan more than any other team in this tournament. You might expect them to to have fired a bit better being, you know, more exposed to the likes of uh, Nabi and Rashid Khan than perhaps some of the other teams in this tournament. But after a very good position they got themselves into, they were two for 92. It all fell apart very quickly with some, some brilliant fielding and some comical running, I guess. <laughs> yeah, a little of column A, a little column B. Indeed. And it all kind of went downhill from there. And yeah, Afghanistan have just been very, very solid chasing in this World Cup. And I, I think, you know, you weren't going to defend 180 against them. And then that moves us on to the England game, which uh, I say this as an England fan. That was probably the most disappointing Dutch performance of, of the three. They let David Milan get away. They pulled it back. It looked very good. They had him six down. And then they really did let Stokes and Wokes get away at the back end and they they, they they piled on the runs and really battered the Dutch out of the game. The batting struggled again. Max O'Dowd is having a, a very disappointing tournament and even if Wesley Beresi had made some runs at the top, there was only one score over 40 which was Tejanidam and Nuru who was left, you know, stranded 41 not outs at the end and losing by 160 runs is uh, probably disappointing in a game which maybe they could have won and qualified for the Champions Trophy with but that's probably another story. Yeah, I mean, the Champions Trophy thing is interesting. It does resolve some of the kind of meaningless games at the back end of the group stage problem. Yeah, an accidental blessing, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's that's good. But at the same time, it is <laughs> it is very on brand for the ICC to, uh, you know, supposedly make this decision two years ago and then not bother to announce it to anybody until halfway through the tournament. So, you know, be that as it may, the Dutch, yeah, it would, would have been quite interesting to see them at the Champions Trophy, but I, I think they probably won't get there on net run rate with a match against India coming. Although, you know, you, you never know. The, the Indians have, uh, you know, cruised through all their games so far. They might they might sort of get a bit complacent. You never know. But, yeah, that England game especially, I mean, even, you know, even in the chase, Wesley Baresi ran himself out again. Like, the Netherlands, and, and you put this in the document, and, and I agree with it. You know, the Netherlands haven't really looked like they've really come together and, and hit top gear as a team you know, I don't think we've seen them play their best as a unit. Uh, you know, for example, like in that game against uh, against the West Indies, where in the qualifier they chased down 370 and and well, <laughs> they tired on 370, and then we saw the the magical individual performance from Logan Van Beek in the super over. But 
you know, we haven't seen a performance like that from the Netherlands at this World Cup. We've seen them struggle early and then sort of scrape their way to a defendable total and then bowl effectively. That's been the sort of modus operandi for their two victories. And also against Sri Lanka, where they were not a million miles off defending their target, it was the same thing again, you know, the early wickets and then the sort of middle lower order come back and, and rescue them and dig them out of a hole and, and then the bowlers do well. So, yeah, it's it's funny that so far they've won two out of eight. So they have a, a 25% win rate against full members, which on the one hand is, you know, middle finger to the, you know, associates shouldn't be in the top level tournaments kind of attitude. But at the same time, I think they could probably be doing a bit better. And, and if Max O'Dowd hadn't stupidly run himself out in that game or, you know, <laughs> there's just so many examples where they've they've been in decent positions and just let it slip away. And I think looking at who has had a good tournament and who has been pretty anonymous, you know, we've seen a few good individual performances, but really Dutt coming through as, you know, that early spin option to, to build pressure in the power play and Edwards uh, as the, <laughs> you know, the, the rescue job. That's kind of the two standouts for me in terms of individual performances. And there haven't really been, uh, you know, anyone else that's that's totally stood up. And I just think, you know, if, if the Netherlands played 100% and India have sort of half their mind on the semi-final, th- they're a chance to beat them. Yeah, I think if you if you go back and you, you, you told the Dutch camp before the tournament, you know, you're going to come away having beaten South Africa and Bangladesh, they'd have taken everything for it. But just looking back on the England game, the Sri Lanka game, maybe even Pakistan, you, you wonder if they'd just been that, that little bit better, they could have had an extra win, maybe maybe four wins if they'd, if they'd been top gear throughout. But they've been hit and miss and particularly with the bat the top order we keep saying hasn't really shown up and yeah if, if they had even if they hadn't won those games that i mentioned uh they, they could have got a lot closer to, to to winning them they could have had a much better net run rate and they might still be in that champions trophy qualification race uh as, as it stands now yes they could be india but india have probably got the best bowling attack in the tournament and the netherlands have probably got the weakest batting lineup so I think unless it rains in Bengaluru, I think it might be a a, a one in a hundred shot. Nevertheless, yeah, as, as an associate to you know turn up and win two games out of eight, that should be pretty extraordinary. And again, we look back on that qualifier; they beat the West Indies, they qualified ahead of Zimbabwe on net run rate, and you know Ireland were nowhere. They've deserved to be here. They've been very good, but they could have been that little bit better. Who knows where they would have been? Yeah, it is It is a bit of a what-if situation. But again, this is kind of, you know, they've had the Super League and we've seen them improve throughout the Super League. And, you know, they've had this World Cup and that's the experience of sort of consistent, intense top-level cricket in a tournament setting. Just think, what if the Super League was being run again? I don't think they'd come away with, you know, only two victories out of the whole Super League if they were playing in the next edition of it. And back when there was supposed to be another edition, the qualification for the next edition was going to be the World Cup qualification. So, you know, by that metric, they would still be in the Super League. So it is kind of highlighting that scenario of, you know, what what if the Netherlands did have just a little bit more exposure at this level and a little bit more time to acclimatise to playing at this high level of intensity. And yeah, it it just, it is frustrating, again, that the Super League won't be run and, and we won't get to see the Netherlands, you know, putting all the things that they've learned over these sort of last two years into practice and, and on a more consistent basis. But that's another question. Um, on, on an individual level, as I said, um, Edwards and Dutt, who, did you see anyone else kind of standing out? Or, or yeah, you, th- you think it was just those two? I think Van der Moer has had a, a good tournament in places, certainly with the ball and in the field, even if he is, you know, 
getting on a bit. He's still still talismanic uh, when when out in the field, still giving it a huge amount of energy. Yeah. But yeah, I think there's little bits of potential here and there, but nobody's really stepped up and, and, and really showed what they can do. Engelbrecht surprised me to an extent, but only because I hadn't really seen much of him in Dutch colours before this tournament at all. Yeah, that's fair. Engelbrecht has been good in this tournament without being... Uh, spectacular and it reflects he, he had a very good uh, top class uh, season and and so i think that's a, another case of you know guys impressing domestically in the netherlands and, and coming through that selection rather than necessarily uh being parachuted in from elsewhere and if if the dutch can keep finding people in the top class to select and yes i know Engelbrecht came through the south african system as a junior but he's moved to the netherlands since then you know, I, I think I think their talent production is pretty promising, and that's been uh, part of Ryan Campbell and, and now Ryan Cook's uh, ongoing project to improve the domestic system in the Netherlands, and and is paying dividends. So, yeah, overall pretty impressive from the Netherlands, but um, I kind of agree with Bertus de Jong that there may be a a, a B or a, a B minus around that sort of level at this tournament, and if they'd really pushed themselves, they could have done a lot better. Yeah, I I guess. They are probably the team that's taken ODIs most seriously in the in, in the intervening period, just being in, in the Super League. You compare it to, to England. My, my, my own bias is here, but um, England seem to forget that 50-over cricket existed in the meantime and have sort of taken six, seven games to remember what they were doing and have still been poor. But the, yeah, the Dutch have... The Super League has massively helped them. And yeah, it is a real pity that it's not coming back around. It would have made... It does put the uh, the Champions Trophy in, in that much more context. That would be three games that they, they, they could still get. It's very unlikely, but still could get that they wouldn't get otherwise in the, in the future tours program. They've got no ODIs scheduled against a full member between now and 2027. Not at the current time. They may get some... They may have impressed teams enough that they... Uh, do get a tour to Amsterdam in, in the coming summers. But uh, for now, yeah, it's a blank schedule for them, which is poor. Well, I mean, it, it's ridiculous, especially when you think about, <laughs> you know, how well they've played here, but also, you know, look at the West Indies uh, schedule over the next few years. Yeah, the contrast is ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, they were, they were dismal in the qualifiers, and yet they've, they've got a full schedule. And the Netherlands have impressed, obviously, they beat the West Indies in the qualifiers in an amazing game, and now they've impressed at the World Cup and they have absolutely nothing, so, yeah. Or even compare it to Ireland, who, you know, only managed seventh at the qualifier. They didn't even make the Super Sixes, but they, you know, they're on the Future Tours program and the, and the Dutch and, and the Scots are not, so... Well, yes, and, I mean, that's the uh, that's the full membership bias playing into it once again, but uh, I'm sure we've... Uh, <laughs> we, we don't need to talk about membership status. Yeah, we, we've, done that, we've done that one enough. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure it'll come up many more times. But uh, yes, uh, moving on to some more contextual tournament cricket, and we saw the Asia qualifier, the Men's T20 World Cup qualifier for the Asia region being held in Kathmandu. Uh, it was played between the 30th of October and the 5th of November with the hosts Nepal and Oman qualifying to both the final of the tournament and next year's uh, Men's T20 World Cup to be held in the West Indies and the USA. Oman ultimately ended up champions of the tournament uh, in a very exciting final, actually, uh, full to bursting 
<laughs> to you, Ground, in Kathmandu. Uh, some of the video clips coming out of that uh, are really spectacular, you know, just absolutely pulsating with energy. And uh, it was it was an exciting game to watch with a lot of um, swings in momentum. But the Nepalese in the final uh, set 184 for six and Oman tied the match and then won the Super over. But, uh, of course, the real, um, the real deal was the semifinals, which were straight-up knockout matches to get into the World Cup. So Oman beat Bahrain very comfortably, restricted them to 106 for 9 in 20 overs, and then chased it down, losing no wickets in the 15th over. And then Nepal wasn't quite as dominant, but they uh, still were pretty comfortable in beating the UAE, restricted them to 134 for 9 uh, in their 20 overs, and chased it down in the 18th over, two wickets down. So, yeah, I mean... I guess you would say the best two teams made it through qualification, but uh, just a couple of little wrinkles. I mean, for one thing, in terms of the scheduling, <laughs> the Mopani ground hosting Nepal's semi-final was kind of ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> you look at the current World Cup that's going on, the ICC has set various contingencies for where India is going to play or Pakistan's going to play if they're in the semi-final or if they're in the semi-final together or you know what have you. So clearly they're able to plan out for these sorts of scenarios based on you know where they want the the crowds to be um, but somehow they couldn't figure that out and just say look Nepal will play at TU no matter what if they're in the semi-finals because Mulpani with a I think the capacity is somewhere in the 4,000 range I mean that's just not enough for an all-or-nothing qualifier we saw footage of you know, guys lining up to get into the ground. They're waiting there at sort of three in the morning to, you know, with their tickets to make sure that they're able to get in. And it, it was it was just ridiculous. And some some wild footage of people just sitting on roofs of, uh, you know, nearby houses to be able to get a bit of a view. So it doesn't really make sense that they were not playing their semifinal at the TU ground. Um, and yeah, I mean, the UAE crashing out i think honestly the uae probably offers a bit more than oman in my opinion at the main event but of course the uae well you could probably argue they had the weaker group uh, they had bahrain hong kong and kuwait whereas oman and nepal were in the same group together and so that's why nepal were you know they, they finished second in their group but then on the other hand in that uh, recent tri series that uh, the uae played with nepal and hong kong the uae did manage to beat nepal in the final of that tri-series, although they lost twice in, in group play and they even lost to Hong Kong in, in group play. So, yeah, very uh, up and down performance for the U from the UAE in recent times. But I, I certainly think their ceiling is higher than Oman, who are still uh, very much relying on, on many of the same ageing players, you know, Zishan, Maksud, Kashyap, Prajapati and co. Uh, whereas the UAE is, is one of the more exciting teams with with a bunch of youngsters coming through, the, you know, the Ali Nasirs of the world. Richard Aravind, who played a really brave knock, uh, hit a half century against Nepal in that semi-final with, um, you know, playing through injury. Uh, he's still only, I think, 22. So the, the young UAE side, I think, would have been nice to see them at the World Cup, but Oman were just definitely the, the best team at the tournament. Yeah, it was a it was a really fun tournament actually. It, it encouraged me out of bed at five a.m. a couple <laughs> of times to to, to watch uh, the end of that um, Oman versus Nepal group game where it went down to the final ball, uh, and yeah, and getting and, and getting up to watch the the, the semi finals as well, um, the UAE versus Nepal game. It was really good fun, and it's uh, obviously great to have big crowds in. I know when I um, 
wrote the preview for the website, I described it as the antithesis of the uh, ODI World Cup in that, you know, we cut down eight teams to two qualifiers in four match days and the, the ODI World Cup is still going on, <laughs> uh, you know, 40, 41 games out of 48. So nearly there. But yeah, as, as you say, I think the best two teams made it in the end. Uh, certainly the way they played in this tournament. We, we can talk about the, the UAE's higher ceiling. But at, at the end of the day, Oman looked the best team in this tournament. They obviously went on to win the whole thing, even if in a super over. Uh, they did hold their nerve twice against Nepal to, to win the whole thing in front of huge home crowds at, at, at TU. I know it's hard to, you know, get an accurate measure of attendance at the, at the TU, but they were saying there was close to 30,000 in for that final, which really was quite a party. I mean, the, the capacity is nominally 20,000, but I can definitely believe 30,000. It was just absolutely heaving. And the, even, yeah, as you say, the, the, the capacity for Mulpani is some, somewhere around 4,000, but you know, the, the fans were queuing up along this this big banked field behind the, the ground and there must have been 15,000 15, watching at least. It was quite quite extraordinary scenes. And even if they were, you know, all outside the ground, it was all yeah, actually very well organized, despite the, you know, the issues that this must have caused for the local police and for, for Cam to organize that at such late notice, you know, being at the wrong ground, as as you've said. But yeah, um, really entertaining tournament, and it, it was good that there were some, some good games to finish it off. And Nepal and Oman deserve qualifiers for sure. Yeah, so I'm certainly not taking anything away from Oman. I think that, you know, that core group of very experienced players, you know, they have been around a long time. They've played a lot of cricket together. They, they know how to win games. Um, they're a very effective unit. Um, I, I guess I, I have a personal bias towards the OE because, yeah. you know, we all like Paul Radley and he writes a lot of very good profiles of, of the young UAE players coming through and, and they, they are a very exciting team but couldn't put it together. And and I, I think you make a good point, actually, that they have been now pretty pretty up and down over the last sort of year or so. And Yeah, it, it's actually... I had to make a list of some of the highs and lows this, this year because it's quite extraordinary. So they played 10 games in Cricket World Cup League 2 at the start of this year, won three, lost three games to Papua New Guinea. They dropped from... I think they were cruising on for third and finished sixth. Then they beat Afghanistan in the T20I. They beat New Zealand in the T20I. But then, you know, they were ninth in the World Cup qualifier. They only won one game there. And then they won three group games in the in the T20 qualifier and then lost in the semi-finals. So, yeah, it has been real highs and lows for them. Yeah, which which again, I I think they have a better chance of uh, of beating a full member, I would say, at the World Cup itself. But then on the other hand, you know, you can probably say that Oman will will put in four very creditable and uh, you know respectable performances. So uh, yeah, it's 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 tricky. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, looking at the other teams, you know, sort of the also rounds in the groups, you know, Group A, Singapore and Malaysia. I mean, Singapore very disappointing. You know, sort of around five years or so ago, they, they looked like a, a team on the up. And yes, Tim David was playing for them. But even looking past Tim David, you know, for example, when they beat Scotland in the 2019 global qualifier, Tim David scored, I think, one or four or something in that game. So, you know, the rest of the team was also performing and they just really seemed to struggle. They They got thrashed by... Malaysia, which I mean, Malaysia are a pretty good team, and you know we can talk about them in a second. But I, I don't know, I don't know what's happened to Singapore, but it it is frustrating to see a team which, I mean, they still have you know guys like Rohan Rangarajan. Yeah, they've got some some good talent, local talent from guys who, who've grown up in Singapore, but they just can't quite seem to put it together. Yeah, it, it it's hard to think that you know one player could galvanise a team so much, but maybe 
Tim David did because, you know, since he's, you know, left the side, they've, they've fallen quite sharply. It's hard to put a finger on it, but they had the T20 Global Qualifier last year where they lost all five of their games and then they've lost all three in the in the Asia Regional this year. So the slide is really quite quite sharp. It's hard to see where they go from here without finding another player to, to completely galvanise the team again. Yeah, it really is strange because, I mean, obviously Tim David was was has a very good record for Singapore, but at the same time, you know, there were other guys performing when he was there. So, yeah, very strange. But I guess jumping across to Singapore's neighbour, Malaysia, I mean, they showed glimpses, but they couldn't quite put it together. They, you know, they, they looked pretty good against Nepal and, and they were not a million miles away from a, a winning total in that game. Daniel Beswick, uh, does Daniel Beswick favourite side as is opening the batting there. Him and um, uh, Zulkifle in that power play, you know, they were smashing Karan KC and and, and Sompao Kami around. Uh, they put on 50 odd in in about five overs, and they looked nailed on to be putting up a huge total. And then uh, Avinash Bohara came in and, and 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 took four wickets and sort of really started the slide for Malaysia and and got Nepal back into the game. You know, Bohara, guy who's been around for a few years and is sort of steadily growing into becoming a, a senior player who will be probably replacing the likes of Kami and Karan KC down the road. Yeah, so, I mean, Malaysia could have probably done a bit better than they did, but yeah, they, they just, they're, they're another team that you look at their domestic setup and they have a lot of guys playing cricket and they have a pretty well-run board and they have they have all the ingredients to be a, a really high-performing associate, but they, they can't quite put it together when it matters and, and it never quite sort of translates on the field. Yeah, you, you're right. Historically, they've struggled to turn good grassroots participation into a, a region-leading high-performance program. But well, you keep thinking they can't be that far away. They've, they've, they've had a good year. I mean, we, we, we can look back on that um, game. They should have beaten Bangladesh in at the Asian Games. Yes, it was a you know a Bangladesh A-team, but that still would have been a huge scalp for, for Malaysia to, to beat a full member, even if it was a, a second-string side. And yeah, as you say, they, they got into good positions in, in both their games against Oman and Nepal. I know they had Oman in a fairly difficult situation halfway through Oman's first innings before they sort of let a man get away at the death and then Bilal Khan came in and knocked over the Malaysia top order quite quickly and killed that one off from the chase uh, and yeah they got into a good position against Nepal before sort of sliding away so they've they've got the potential there they just haven't put it together of course you can say you know they played the best two teams in the tournament matches one and two and were quickly eliminated if they'd been in the in the other group against you know the likes of Bahrain, Kuwait Hong Kong, they may have gone a little bit better, but obviously that's uh, that, that's academic now. Yeah, and I mean, that other group, just moving across to, to Group B, the UAE undefeated, pretty comfortable victories against uh, all of these other teams, which, as we discussed, are, are probably a bit weaker. But then <laughs> you, Bahrain, Hong Kong and Kuwait all ended up on two points beating each other. So, yeah, I, I, I think... All of those teams would be a little bit disappointed with their own performances, um, especially Hong Kong, who, as, as we said, looked pretty good. They beat the UAE in that tri-series, the warm-up series before the tournament. Martin Kotze got a score. Antman Rath got a score. You know, they actually have a, a pretty good top order now that, uh, you know, Baba Hyatt's back. He scored a, a 15, I think it was 15 balls against the UAE in, the, in that tri-series, but um, didn't do a whole lot in the qualifiers here. You know, so they've yeah they've got um, Martin Kotze who's who's slotted in at the top, uh, Nazaka Khan who's been uh, a good performer but he was a bit anonymous here. Anshi Rath obviously we all know how good he is, Baba Hayat you know that's that's a 
pretty good top four in associate cricket. And, you know, even Azaz Khan, um, Yasin Murtazar can, can hit it a long way as well down the order. So, you know, they've got the ingredients for a pretty good batting lineup, but their, their bowling just is a bit disappointing and, and there's not really much penetration. Esan Khan, he actually got tonked uh, against the UAE, but, you know, typically he's pretty reliable. Yasin Murtazar, a tidy left armour. You know, they, they've got a workman like sort of bowling lineup, but no one that can really, you know, run through an attack. Whereas, you know, you look across to someone like an Oman, you know, they can throw the ball to Bilal Khan and, and just expect him to produce a bit of magic and, you know, jag one or two quick wickets. Um, and, you know, same thing for Bahrain and Kuwait, you know, they have a few good performance, but they, they don't quite have the full package. And even though they've all been, you know, they, they, I think the golf region actually in cricket is a, like a mini Asia in terms of all these teams play each other quite a lot. And the consistent cricket is allowing them all to improve steadily. And I think the standard is certainly getting better in that region. And Bahrain and Kuwait are, are certainly not a million miles away from the UAE, but uh, still the UAE is the dominant team in the region. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting looking at Hong Kong. Obviously, you can roll back the clock a few years and uh, sort of reminisce about how hard they were hit by losing ODI states. But slowly but surely, they seem to be putting the, the pieces back together. So maybe they'll have a an uptick in the new f- near future. We'll have to see what happens with the with the Challenge League going into the next cycle. But they'll obviously be back there again and there'll be T20 qualifiers coming around plenty often enough to get them um, back up along with, you know, lots of ACC tournaments because we know the ACC does a good job of getting all these teams together to play each other, uh, like, like, like you mentioned. And yeah, ultimately, those three teams, there wasn't a huge amount between them in the end. Hong Kong didn't beat Kuwait by a huge margin. Bahrain didn't beat Hong Kong by a huge margin. And then... Kuwait did beat Bahrain, but the sort of effect of that was that Bahrain made the semi-finals by one run, or the equivalent of on net run rate. So those three teams were actually very close together, uh, at least on on-field performance, which obviously made for quite quite an interesting end. Uh, yeah, the, the the golf teams. There's a lot of cricket going on in the golf that we don't necessarily always hear about. But yeah, there's there's teams coming through there with a lot of talented players and playing against each other more and more often. So. Um, that's definitely a, a sub-region to, to keep an eye on. Yep, just summarising, once again, Nepal and Oman, the two teams to make it out of Asia for the 2024 T20 World Cup. Moving on to Africa, which will be the last of the regional qualifiers, the, the regional finals, uh, with two slots still available from the region to go to the West Indies and USA in 2024. Uh, we've seen a warm-up series of sorts uh, with... Namibia hosting Zimbabwe, who, you know, both of those teams will be among the favourites to, to make it out of the region. Uh, Namibia have won their second series against Zimbabwe after beating them uh, in, in a T20 series last year. Um, this time it was a home victory after last year they, they travelled to Zimbabwe and beat them. They won 3-2. Uh, a really exciting series, very entertaining stuff. And, uh, you know, for those of us uh, with, with, with a VPN Set to South Africa, we were able to tune into the uh, the One Africa stream. Kind of an interesting choice from Namibia to, to put it on that rather than just their Facebook page like usual. But yeah, so Namibia won the first T20i by seven wickets, comfortably chasing in 14 overs. Uh, the second T20i was a, a, a real thriller. Namibia posted 198, uh, which uh, Zimbabwe and Sikanda Raza chased on the very last ball. Uh, we, we discussed that with uh, Andrew Nixon last week. The third match, Zimbabwe won by six wickets, uh, chasing 144 in 18.4 overs. Uh, and then Namibia won the last two games. Uh, in the fourth, they chased uh, 154 
in 18.4 overs. And in the last match, it was a low-scoring thriller after the high-scoring thrillers earlier. Uh, Namibia posted 101 all out, and then they managed to bowl out Zimbabwe for 93. So, yeah, very exciting series. Uh, a lot of good performances across the board. Um, you know, some of the names you'd expect. Sekanda Raza, <laughs> obviously uh, unstoppable once again. Uh, Craig Irvine finding a bit of form as well for Zimbabwe. Ryan Burl was back in the team, back in the wickets, um, which which was nice to see. He's been kind of in and out of, of the squad. So, yeah, I mean, some, some good signs from both teams. I think if Zimbabwe are to progress, uh, you know, having Sikandar Raza in this kind of uh, <laughs> just world-beating form, I mean, 82 of 35 is, is just a classic Sikandar Raza knock there. Um, and and he picked up four wickets in the last game against Namibia as well. So he's, he's you know, he's finding his rhythm with bat and ball, and he's going to be extremely important for Zimbabwe in that qualifier. But uh, yeah, good good series, good entertaining cricket from, from both sides. And I, I think, you know, looking ahead to that qualifier, they're equal favourites, I would say, although Uganda are definitely in the mix. Yeah, it's it, it's good to see just how close these two teams are on the pitch, especially when they're, they're, they're close together geographically. And yeah, as you say, this is the second time they've played a, a five-match T20i series, and it's the second time that Namibia have come away 3-2 winners. So that's quite extraordinary. I think also, I, I, I may be wrong on this and I may get correct, corrected later on, but I think this is the first time Namibia have hosted a full member for a full status international series so that that's a nice little feather in the cap for them ahead of uh, ahead of the qualifiers yeah obviously a very very competitive series you, you mentioned Sikandar Raza being fantastic as well but uh, it's actually Nicholas Davin that topped the run charts overall he had a a, a very good series at the top of the order for, for, for Namibia smashed you know 80 runs in that first game off 40 balls when they were only chasing 120 so he's in good form uh, and yeah, they're, they're warming up towards the Africa qualifiers, which starts in just under two weeks. You have to say, well, apart from this being the perfect prep for, for both teams, you know, these two teams are the favourites on paper and uh, backing that up on the pitch in this series. Yeah, Darwin at the top, I, I like that he's settling into that role. Um, he's, he's a guy who's sort of faded away from the team uh, for a few years and he's he's found his way back and he seems to be uh, the ideal partner for Michael Van Lingen at the top there and I like that combination a lot. The Namibian sort of middle order is still pretty experimental. <laughs> they they do shuffle around a bit and but that's you know that's part of Erasmus's uh, you know he, he has a lot of ideas about uh, you know how the match is going and, and he'll sort of uh, adjust the batting lineup to suit which is uh, you know you, you read a lot of analysis and stuff about T20 and that's, that's sort of what you're supposed to be doing really in T20 is being a bit more flexible with your, your batting lineup. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see if it works for them. But, yeah, that, that opening combination, I think, is going to be very important in the qualifiers. And Nico Darwin, as you say, um, topping the run chart, good effort from him. And he's exactly what you need at the top. You know, he'll, he'll go hard. He'll either make some runs or he'll <laughs> he'll get out early and, and he won't waste time. So, yeah, good series, uh, good warm-up for the, um, the Africa qualifier, which, as you allude to, starts on the 22nd of November. And, um, yeah, a bit of, uh, I guess, also a warm-up for the Namibians in terms of hosting and, and um, you know, getting their facilities in line for the tournament. So, yeah, that's obviously, as, as I say, just under two weeks away. There's going to be five other teams at that tournament. I'm sure we'll discuss it more in depth next week. But, um, you know, Kenya, Nigeria, Rwanda, Tanzania and Uganda are also going to be joining them, battling out for that 
those two spots. And I guess we can cover a little bit of squad news for both of those, which is to say that Frankensburga is still going for Uganda at 43 years old, <laughs> included in the squad. Again, they've um, Uganda have already left uh, for a prep camp there in uh, Takashinga Club in Harare, Zimbabwe. So good to see him still going. And then you've got Colin Zaboya still going for Kenya at 42 years old as well. Yeah, two real favourites for the Emerging Krieger podcast. So uh, best of luck to them. In the tournament, yeah, as you say, we'll probably get into a bit more depth next week, but uh, definitely one to keep an eye out. And it will be available on ICC TV, which brings us to our next topic, which is Robolinda 2, the legendary YouTube account who has done more for cricket viewing than any of the ICC stuff that's on uh, ICC TV. He's been pulled off YouTube due to a copyright strike from a Pretty shadowy entity, it must be said. Uh, a, a strange company that seems to have just been started a couple of months ago and somehow they ended up with the TV rights for Bangladesh cricket. And uh, yeah, Rob Linda fell afoul of that, despite, according to him, pulling down the Bangladesh highlights that uh, he'd been alerted to. So, I mean, there's a few things going on here. It really it shows how primitive cricket is with, with its rights and with highlights and, and whatnot. Um, it shows how dumb YouTube's copyright system is. I mean, we've seen even bigger accounts fall afoul of that and get into trouble for frivolous or, or malicious copyright claims. We've subsequently seen the ICC uh, come in and at least talk to him. I mean, there's no reason why you know, the ICC can't be doing what he's doing with their highlights. You know, it could have an ICC channel where, yes, the ICC doesn't own the rights to bilateral cricket, which is mostly what Rob was recording, you know, but his archive basically has all of Australia's home summers from, I think he said it might have been 1985 or some, somewhere thereabouts in the 80s, uh, all the way to the present day. And so he, why doesn't the ICC have that footage from all the tournaments that they've run over the years available on YouTube or, you know, on ICC TV? You know, why, why can't the ICC be, be doing what Rob Linder's doing? It's, it's very strange. But, um, you know, on a personal note, I, I, I would like to thank... Uh, Rob Linder too. You know, he helped out with some of the footage that I used in the retrospective on Namibia's 2003 World Cup appearance. Um, I couldn't find it anywhere else because, you know, as I just said, the ICC doesn't really publish them anywhere. So, you know, Rob Linder had access to, to a lot of stuff from that Cricket World Cup that, you know, I, I couldn't get anywhere else. So, you know, I, I think having a guy like this you know, an archivist, essentially, of, of cricket over decades. He's served a valuable role in hit cricket history, and he's just you know, he's just brought a lot of joy to a lot of people with it, with his videos. So it's, yeah, it's just a great shame. Yeah, and I guess one of the things is that given that there is the need for an account like Rob Linder to exist, just kind of shows you how far behind the ICC or, or, or cricket in general is at just, you know, social media engagement in as you say, these should all be on an ICC YouTube channel or, you know, the, the, the respective boards, the, the actual content owners' YouTube channels. It should all be up there and available so that, you know, we can go back and watch it at any time you like. Or, as you say, ICC TV could be used as a, a as an archive for, for old match highlights, which it really isn't anything at this stage. And it's been going for, what, three years, four years? So the ICC cricket in general, is just not doing enough to, to make this kind of content accessible. And then you get a copyright strike from some shady business and YouTube's copyright system sides with the claimant most of the time. And that's just the politics of it. There's little that can be done. We can obviously hope that Rob gets his YouTube account back, but I, I wouldn't hope too hard. It's, it's not hugely likely. So disappointing. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's just the absolute 
your know, depth of content. Yeah, you know, I remember watching. <laughs> I mean, this is this says more about me than anything else. But <laughs> I remember watching a video of a, a full innings of Shane Watson playing a domestic one dayer for Tasmania. <laughs> he hit, I think, forty odd. You know, wasn't particularly remarkable. But that's the kind of content that Rob uploaded was just absolutely in-depth stuff that you wouldn't find anywhere else. And it's so bizarre to me because. You know, most of the stuff that's up there, no one else is trying to publish anywhere else. And I, I very much doubt that the uh, questionable entity that has copyrights struck him, I don't think they're going to be publishing the sort of videos that Rob was publishing anyway. So not not going to be monetizing it either, are they? Well, I don't think they, they've got about 10 followers on their platform. So, yeah, it's it's very strange and just incredibly, incredibly disappointing and Peter Delapena always likes to make the comparison to to basketball and the NBA, where you know they basically <laughs> anyone can access any of the footage they want, and you know you get loads of compilations and clips put out on socials, and people put together mixtapes of you know player highlights and and whatnot, and you know there's a whole culture around clipping highlights and and putting stuff out there, which really helps to to build the brand and and to get people following the sport, and I, I just don't understand why cricket isn't encouraging that because people people love watching highlights people love watching cool moments clipped together and it's it's just bizarre that the cricket is so backwards in that in that space yeah it doesn't doesn't make sense to me it's just you know poor poor social engagement as as, as i say and the icc and, and cricket in general needs to up its game but um <laughs> until it does you know cats like rob belinda were fantastic and now now we don't have it so no, a sad day for cricket yeah, uh, well, hopefully there'll be a Rob Linder 3 coming uh, someday soon, but uh, yeah, you, you, you don't know what's going to happen. But uh, yeah, disappointing. Um, a few more quick things before we go. Uh, we've got a Thailand emerging team is playing in Pakistan, which is a, a pretty interesting and a good experience for them. Pakistan A is hosting the Thailand emerging side and a West Indies A team in a tri-series, and Thailand's sticking around for a couple more T20s against that uh, Pakistan A team. No victories so far for Thailand, uh, losing to both Pakistan A and West Indies A. Um, they seem to be blooding in a few more bowlers uh, who, who are having a bit of success, but the batting remains a bit of a concern. Um, the batting lineup actually pretty close to what they would field in a in a full strength team, whereas the bowling a little more experimental. You know, some some players have been fringes of the team, I guess you could say. Sunita Chataram Gratana, Nantita Bunsukam, and Apasara, Sawanch and Rati, you know, they, they all bowled well, um, you know, so that's that's some names to kind of keep an eye out for in the future for Thailand. Um, still a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of spin slash, you know, slow seam cutter type bowling. Um, they haven't really unearthed any fast bowlers that I've come across. Um, I mean, I, I guess Chanita Sudarang is maybe the closest they have to a fast bowler, but she's not really fast. So that's that's also something maybe that they, they need to work on. Um, but yeah, batting, definitely the biggest concern for Thailand. They, their batting struggled in, in both of their losses. But yeah, good little tour for them. Yeah, kudos, I guess, to the PCB for, you know, putting on a, a Women's A series and then inviting Thailand on, on, on top of that. So very good to see. And um, yeah, hopefully this helps Thailand to, to bring through some replacement players for, for, for their current generation, which obviously still very good, but perhaps at, if not a little bit past its peak now. So good to get some young players into the side. Yeah, uh, I think 
Pakistan actually have been uh, one of the better full members in terms of playing associates and, and making a bit of an effort. Yeah, consistently so. Yeah, so you know, <laughs> Pakistan cricket certainly has a lot of uh, a lot of issues, but on that that regard, I think we we need to applaud them. Yeah, elsewhere in women's cricket, the Women's Pacific Cup is coming back around. So that's exciting. Uh, hosted in New Zealand next January. The New Zealand Maori team is going to be going up against PNG, Vanuatu, Samoa, Fiji and the Cook Islands. So that was a, a very successful tournament the first time. And it's great that it's getting another go, um, you know, this Pacific region. Decent amount of cricket starting to be played between these uh, between these teams. So um, that's encouraging. And I'm sure we'll hear more about it in, in due course from Tim. But always great to be... Uh, seeing more Pacific women's cricket because they were really hard hit by COVID. You know, that, there was sort of two years there where they basically played absolutely nothing. Yeah, um, for, for sure. And we'll hear from more from Tim in the future, but I wonder where this will, the timing of this will be relative to the, the, the women's global qualifier and how that will work out for Vanuatu. It could be really good prep for them. The other thing to note here, reading around the press releases, is I think this is the first time that New Zealand have put together this uh, this Maori team. So that's a that's a really nice thing to do as well and get them involved playing against the, uh, the, the Pacifica nations. So yeah, really nice to see. Good to see this running again and, and, and growing from, from the last time as well. Yeah, I think they might have done it a few times on the men's side, but I think this is the first I've seen on the women's side. So yeah, great, great to see, good initiative, and sort of lines up very nicely with the Australian Indigenous uh, the tours that have been going on around the region. So yeah, good, good effort from New Zealand as well in terms of hosting it. And finally, on the fifteenth of November, we're seeing a pretty interesting series uh, starting. The women's quadrangular being played in Hong Kong hosts. Hong Kong, obviously. Uh, Nepal is coming to visit Japan and Tanzania. The little through lines that I think are worth mentioning, uh, it's for the first outing for Indu Bama as skipper for Nepal. Uh, Rabina Chetri, who's uh, been captain for a decade um, and, and one of Nepal's main contributors over that time, is stepping down from leadership, although she remains in the team. Bama has, uh, you know, she's shown a few good performances. She's been pretty inconsistent, though. So you would think if she's going to be taking a leadership role, uh, she's going to need to become uh, yeah, a bit more of a consistent contributor rather than a, a, a sort of a, uh, an all-or-nothing all-rounder where she'll, <laughs> she'll score runs and take wickets or she'll do nothing in either discipline uh, as it has been over the last few years. And the other little thread I think that's worth, worth looking at is the fact that uh, Tanzania has been one of the leading women's associates in the Africa region. Uh, they won the Kubuka last year. They're consistently around the sort of Uganda level in that very competitive African region. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to see the sort of the, the benchmark in terms of how they go against Asian teams. Um, yeah, Hong Kong and Nepal. Yeah, I don't know. There are a couple of teams that have sort of stagnated a little as, as Thailand and UAE have raced ahead in the Asia region. And Japan... Yeah, I don't know. They're a bit of a wild card, in my opinion. You know, they were okay, but they were a step behind PNG and Vanuatu at the East Asia Pacific qualifiers. So, yeah, that's another cross-regional matchup. Yeah, as, as you say, great to have more of the, these cross-regional tournaments, uh, obviously drawing in one team from uh, the Pacific region and one team from Africa for this four-team tournament. So, uh, yeah, and it'll be great to see how these teams stack up. Well, obviously, they don't play each other often, if ever, ever before. So this could be the first for all of these, and we'll get to see how these regions match up against each other. Obviously, we consistently talk about how strong Africa are, both both in terms of like uh, the the level they're playing at and the number of teams playing at that level. But then you've obviously got some strong teams in Asia as well. Uh, we mentioned that um, 
you know, Thailand and UAE, uh, perhaps a step ahead of Hong Kong and Nepal, but not that far ahead. So where these teams match up will be really fascinating to see. Yeah, and a little bit of uh, interesting context, I guess, is uh, that, that series between Namibia and the UAE, where Namibia travelled to the UAE and they beat them uh, 4-2 in a six-match T20I series. So Namibia is arguably the, the top women's associate in, in the Africa region, and uh, UAE is probably the second, uh, although they actually did beat Thailand recently as well. So um, you would think that Tanzania playing against the teams that are a step behind UAE, they should be pretty successful. But um, yeah, it, w- it will be a very interesting uh, benchmark between the two regions. Once again, that series being played between the 15th and 19th of November. So tune in if you can. Thanks again for joining us on the show, Tom Grunshaw. Uh, thanks for having me on, Nick. And thanks to all our wonderful listeners for tuning in uh, every week. And remember, of course, that you can also get big innings on the same podcast feed. So have a listen to that as well. And you'll hear everything you need to know about USA cricket. But from us this week, it's bye for now.